Good morning again. Buenos días de nuevo. Bendiciones. Do you think Rachel did a great job with that Spanish song? <laughs> That's awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> Have you ever considered that when God saves us, He changes us, we get a new spirit? We have a new desire to love him, to please him. But our thoughts, the way how we look at the world, our worldview remains the same. And why is it important for us to understand that fact? Because our actions are determined by our beliefs. So, if we do not renew our minds, then our actions are going to be as unbiblical as the actions of any other non-believer. So just as a fish does not know that it's wet, in the same way, we have no idea how many of the worlds and the culture around us, their thoughts, their points of views, their worldviews are in us the moment that God saves us. Therefore, because of our ignorance and because we have not renewed our minds, when a false teaching comes our way, <clears throat> we're not going to be able to discern. And the thing that makes you know, discerning a false teaching hard is that all false teaching has a little bit of truth in it. They also talk about and are very similar to the beliefs of the culture around us. And they also appeal to our deep desires to love, for justice, for unity, for compassion, for belonging, for peace. So what makes it even harder in this day and age is that we swim in a post-modern, post-Christian, post-truth world, where more and more what we hear is that we need to look to our feelings and our preferences to determine how to live our lives. There is no absolute truth. Therefore, truth is determined by what I feel and by whether I understand something or not. And our culture thinks that if something does not, if a teaching does not make sense to us, or if it doesn't make me or the ones who I love happy, then it is false, and it should be disregarded. So what this means is that if we don't renew our minds, if we don't look at the world the way that God looks at it, 
if we don't put on God's glasses, we're not going to be making decisions that do not bring glory to God. And when error comes our way, when a false teaching, a man-centered gospel comes our way, we're either not going to be discerning that it is a false gospel, or we're either going to disregard the true gospel because it doesn't make sense to us, or because, again, it doesn't make us feel good and comfortable and happy. And today, we're going to continue with First John. We're in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And the main point of this passage is learning how to, to discern truth from error. So let's read 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By these you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome, overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant us all that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnest to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So John tells us in this passage that there are two questions that we need to ask to discern whether somebody comes from God, whether it's a true teaching or not. Number one, in verse 3, we read that do they believe, the question is, do they believe that Christ came in the flesh? That is, is he the Son of God and he came to save his people from their sins? And then in verse 6, the other question is, are they listening? 
submitting to the apostolic teaching. So in light of that, our two points today are going to be, number one, why does it matter that we believe that Jesus came in the flesh? ¿Por qué importa que creamos que Jesucristo vino en la carne? And number two, is there such a thing? Is there such a thing as absolute truth? Existe tal cosa como la verdad absoluta. So point number one, why does it matter that we believe that Jesus came in the flesh? ¿Por qué importa que Jesucristo, que creamos que Jesucristo vino en la carne? In order to answer these questions, we need to take a little step back and then take a look at the world the way God sees it. And as I said before, we need to put on our glasses, God's glasses, to see the world from his point of view because he is the one who ordains and determines history. History is God's story. And as one apologist said, it is the story of reality. And theologians call it the story of redemption. And God's story has four chapters. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So, chapter one of God's story, creation. Capítulo uno de la creación. De la historia de Dios, creación. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. That's where we need to start. God is the main and principal character of God's story, of history. It is about him, not about us. The triune God chose to create the whole universe, not because he needed us, but just because he wanted to do it. Therefore, God does not exist for us or to make us happy and fulfill our dreams. We exist for him and for his glory. And we are the only part of, the only ones in creation that God created in his image and likeness. What that means is that we are all the only ones that can have a relationship with him. And that is our purpose in life, to know him, enjoy him, and represent him before all creation. And the fact that we are created in the image of God means that our value is not determined by what we do, how wealthy we are, how famous we are, how smart, athletic, or beautiful we are, but is determined by who we are, image bearers of God. Therefore, no one can take the from us because men didn't give it to us God did therefore the only way how we 
humans can give each other dignity and value is in seeing each other as image bearers of God. And in addition to that, God created us male and female. And he established marriage to be between a man and a woman to procreate, to fill the earth, and together as a team to be managers of all creation. Chapter 2 of God's story, the fall. Capítulo 2 de la creación, de la historia de Dios, la caída. In Genesis 3, we read that our first parents decided to believe the lies of Satan and doubt God's character and God's word. We chose to determine what is good and evil apart from God's wisdom and God's knowledge. They wanted to be autonomous. They wanted to be God. At that moment, sin entered the world. And the fruit of sin is and continues to be spiritual and physical death and brokenness in every area of our being. Our emotions, our will, our intellect, our bodies, everything was touched by sin. And including all of creation. The harmony and peace that existed between Adam and Eve and God between man and woman, between Adam and Eve, and all of creation was broken. Moral and natural evil enter the world. And since that time, every human being that is born is born in sin, in rebellion against God, and just focused and determined on live, to live an autonomous life. And without the fall, we will have not been able to understand and see parts of God, God's character. We will have not been able to see his grace, his mercy, his justice, his love, his infinite love for us, as well as his anger and wrath. Therefore, God would not have been able to receive the glory due his name due to those attributes. So the story of reality continues. Chapter 3, redemption. La historia de Dios continúa, la redención. In Genesis 3.15, we read, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Jesus would be the offspring of Eve that will crush the head of Satan. Jesus, with this promise, right after the fall, the story of redemption continues. And he shows us how man is not able to save himself. It shows the natural and disastrous consequences of sin. 
And he also shows us God's faithfulness in continuing to reveal himself through his actions and his law. And then, in the fullness of time, God the Son took on flesh, became one of us to fulfill the promises that God had made beginning in the garden and progressively revealed in the Old Testament. Jesus is the climax of God's story. Jesus is the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said. Jesus' death was not simply an expression of his love for us to imitate. Sin had to be punished. Sin could not go unpunished. Sin is an offense against the infinite, eternal, holy, loving God. And the triune God determined that death is a penalty for sin. So since God is just and holy, for us to be able to be back in harmony with him, we sinners had to pay for sin before him. But we could not save ourselves. So God the Son came and took our place, our place. And now, through faith in him, in who he is, and what he has done for us, we can be restored and have a relationship with him. In the last chapter of God's story is restoration. El último capítulo de la historia de Dios es restauración. This world is not all there is. There will be a new heaven and a new earth where all injustices and wrongs will be taken care of, where every tear will be wiped away and where there will be no more pain and sorrow. There will be no more sin. I can't wait. <laughs> I will be able to know him and enjoy him perfectly for all eternity. Can't wait. But also with the new heavens and the new earth, there will be judgment. There is a place that the Bible calls hell where all those who are not God's children will spend eternity continuing to display and express their self-centeredness, selfishness, and enmity towards God and to be punished for their sins. But for his children, the new heavens and the new earth are going to be beyond comparison. So, yes, we are not the main characters in God's story, but we are supporting actors. So as we go on through life, growing in our knowledge of God, 
and doing the good works that he has called us to do, we're going to experience the brokenness in this world. As we go and serve the hungry and the poor and the needy, as we seek to bring justice and peace in our communities and in the world, we're going to be face to face with evil and suffering. For some of us, that may lead us to question God and doubt our faith. But if we live in God's story rather than ours, if we remember that we are not the center of the reality, if we remember that God is the main character, if we remember that our purpose in life is not to be happy, but to know him and represent him in the midst of a broken world. If we remember that this world is not all that there is, then we can acknowledge and receive the brokenness in the world, but also expect it and also persevere by representing him and reflecting him right there in the midst of pain, evil, and suffering. So listen to this quote from the book Truth Matters by Andreas Kastenberger and Daryl Bach, among others. It's a little long uh, quote, so please hang in there with me. Admittedly, these are fair questions, deserving of much more than pat answers. But for our purposes right now, let's drill a bit deeper into what the Bart Ehrmans of this world are saying and ask ourselves. What's at the bottom of his statement? What are they really saying when they call God out for what he's doing? When they challenge what they perceive to be the way God operates. Here it is. God, you cannot be good. You shouldn't do it like this. You should know better. If you're real, and that's a big if, you are seriously not handling things right. Well, if what God is doing is wrong, how do we know that? How can we judge his actions to be cruel and immoral? What standard do we use to measure the rightness or wrongness of his behavior or of anyone's behavior? If there is no God, if there is no word, no truth, then what makes someone who busts out your windshield any more wrong than if they wash your car or buy you a tank of gas? Without something or someone somewhere in the universe 
to frame our existence in such a way that certain actions are good and others are evil, on what grounds do we decide which is which? God is God. We're not. We are his creation. And as Tim Keller put it, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Again, we see lurking within this supposed hard-nosed skepticism an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties. If our minds can plumb the depth of the universe for good answers to suffering, well, then there can't be any. This is blind faith of high order. So why does it matter that we believe that Jesus came in the flesh? Because if Jesus did not come in the flesh, there is not a God story. Therefore, life is meaningless. And like Macbeth said, life is a tell of an idiot, full of sound of fury, signifying nothing. Christianity then is not real, and the Bible is not God's revelation to his children by just a simple collection of books written by men. So that leads us to point number two, question number two. Is there such a thing as absolute truth? Existe tal cosa como la verdad absoluta. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the truth. And in John 17, 17, Jesus is praying to the Father and asking for his disciples. And he says, ask the Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So God is truth. Jesus is truth. The word is truth. So yes, there is such a thing as absolute truth. And as you can imagine, the main thing that the false teachers have in common is that they deny the entire Bible as the infallible and inerrant word of God. They either blatantly deny it or they just simply twist their meanings to make it say whatever they think it should say, or they just simply ignore the portions that doesn't make sense for us, for them, or that doesn't make them or their friends good, feeling good and happy and comfortable. Alice Childers quotes Blaise Pascal in her book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies. Blaise Pascal famously wrote, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs 
not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Then she continues. Pascal made an important observation about how humans tend to determine their authority for truth. Simply put, most of us aren't un simply analyzing facts and coming to unbiased conclusions. We tend to base our authority for what we should and shouldn't do, think and believe mostly on what makes us comfortable. An author, Abdul Murray, in his book, Saving Truth, says, put plainly, many Christians have bought into what Kinnaman and Lyons call the new moral code, that people should not criticize someone else's life choices. Can we see the seduction playing on right before our eyes? The post-truth culture of confusion elevates preferences and feelings over facts and truth. And by elevating our preferences to be liked and feel accepted, Christians have misapplied the plain truth of Jesus' words and exchanged them for pleasant cultural comforts. These are pretty strong words. And it should lead us to deep reflection. How we ask ourselves, what is my authority in life? When we make decisions, do we base them on our feelings and preferences, signs or reason? or on the Word of God. When we read a passage of a scripture that is hard to understand or goes against our preferences or against the beliefs of our peers, do we seek to understand it? Or do we just simply negate it or ignore it? The world is becoming darker and darker. It is calling good, evil, and evil, good. We need to renew our minds and see the world as God sees it in order to be able to discern truth from error. If you're here today and you have any questions about the truth and reliability of the scripture, even there online, please come to James or any of the leaders. There are plenty of resources to answer your questions. You don't need to be afraid to ask questions. Christianity is a reasonable faith, solidly grounded in the God who created this whole universe. There is nothing to fear. If the triune God is real, if God really wants us to know him, then do you think it's a big deal for the creator of the universe to make sure that there is a collection of books 
with his special revelation for us to be able to know him and know how to glorify him? No. When we renew our minds, when we have a biblical worldview, we know that we're not the center of reality. We know that God is the main character, not us. God is not our butler. He's our living, loving Lord. We know that this world is a broken world. So when we encounter trials and sufferings, when our dreams are destroyed, when we are treated unjustly, when we encounter evil and suffering face to face, when life just does not make sense to us, we know that this world is not all that there is and that the creator of this universe is our Father who is working out everything for our good and for his glory. In a world where it is claimed that it is impossible to determine truth, where we hear the mantra, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, where we determine what truth is based on our feelings, it is daunting to figure out and to discern truth from error. But God has not left us without a compass. God is truth, and he has revealed himself in Jesus and in his word. God's story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, is a framework that he has given us to see the world as he sees it and to be able to discern truth from error. And then those of us who the triune God has saved, we have his promise in verse 4 that tells us, little children, you are from God and you have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Therefore, if you are his child, you will not be deceived. So you may ask, why bother? <laughs> because God wants us to be mature. God wants us to reflect him and represent him well in the midst of this broken world. And as the author of Hebrews says, the mature is he who through the power, has their powers of discernment trained by continuing practicing discernment and distinguishing good from evil, truth from error. So as we seek to mature, as we do the hard work of renewing our minds, we can rest in the fact that the Holy Spirit in us 
will lead us and guide us into all truth and will cause us to persevere until the end. Let's pray. Father, unless you build the house, we labor in vain. We also know that you who began the good work in us will bring it to pass. We can rest in you. We can rest in the fact that indeed he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Help us, Lord, to renew our minds. Help us to see you as you are. Help us to be firmly grounded and rooted in your word. This world needs us. This world needs us to reflect you and represent you well. May we do so for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.